Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. What's up? Oh, just, you know, cold chilling. Yeah. That's right. Just chilling in a, in a cold way. Yeah. Where are you? I'm sitting in my office. There, the, uh, our, the early part of our show is going to be uh, complicated by the fact that there's a helicopter hovering over downtown for some reason. Oh, yeah? So I don't know if you can hear it, but it's back there. I do hear that. Yeah, it's sort of choppering. I'm not sure what it's what it uh, what it portends, but um, there it is. So don't be distracted by the fact that I'm I'm broadcasting from it from my studio in um, the heart of downtown Seattle. Can you identify what kind of chopper it is? Like, is it civilian or military? Can you tell just by the sound? I know that it is not a. Uh, it's not like a Black Hawk. It doesn't sound like a. It sounds like a news helicopter or perhaps a medevac but the medevac choppers there's a hospital not far and the medevac choppers do kind of come over the building on their long approach yeah but this guy has just been he's in a he's in a straight hover oh uh let's see i can actually see him uh he looks like a bell he's a bell helicopter okay uh but he's he's positioned almost exactly over me in a way that I cannot my helicopter identification skills are not good enough to tell you what exactly right helicopter it is I used to uh, used to be a big fan of the bell helicopters I just thought they were sexy looking mm-hmm. and I had a I had a, I had a certain had a certain strong feeling about a certain kind of of um, I thought I thought that there was a more, even more than airplanes. I had strong feelings that some helicopters were were very sexy and cool looking, and some were dumb looking. And I still have that prejudice. Like I I um, I'll still see a helicopter and just be like, nope. Nope. Just flat out reject it. Just like that. You don't want anything to do with that thing. That helicopter's that helicopter's not good. That's not a good helicopter. A lot of the, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the French ones. A lot of the a lot of the ones that are that are kind of cheap to get into. If you if you're like trying to get into the helicopter game, and you feel like you feel like you can afford, you can afford a like a base model helicopter uh-huh. or like a entry entry level helicopter. I don't think those are very sexy. I think the bell 407 isn't a, is a very attractive helicopter. Um, you know, obviously the, uh, the Huey is a sexy helicopter. That's a famous one. Even I know very what a Huey is. Yeah. Very famous. The, uh, the original, the sort of mash 407. Yeah. What is that one? The, the the forty seven the bell forty seven it's a sexy helicopter um oh right I'm looking the, at pictures of these that's the one it's sort of got the almost like the little bubble yeah the bubble or in the, the H, front the h thirteen h thirteen I think is the um is let me be the military designation of that uh you know in the cobra right the uh the Cobra attack helicopter, very sexy helicopter. But boy, there are a lot. There are a lot that I, that I don't like. That is the Bell AH-1 Cobra. Mm, the AH-1, yeah. 
Did you, you remember what was the name of that TV show? Was it a movie first and then a TV show about the helicopter? Mm, you're talking about, are you talking about uh, Blue Thunder? Blue Thunder, yeah. Yeah, Blue Thunder with Roy Scheider. Yes, yeah. That's right. Uh, um, <laughs> Were you a fan? Well, so I liked the movie, but... I had a reason. So I think the, I think one of the sexiest. You, uh, had, you had a reason. I did. I think one of the sexiest helicopters is the, uh, is the, the Magnum PI helicopter. Do you remember the, the, um, the, the Magnum? Yeah, it, had the, it was like brown and it had the orange and the yellow stripes on it. Yes. Those is that are the, the one? Those are the colors of it. Wasn't that um, like, didn't they use that? Like that was, they went on like tour with that or something. Oh, they they took it out and like took it around to malls and stuff. Yeah, I don't know what they did with that. Uh, oh yeah, here's some pictures of that thing. Yeah, <laughs> that thing is awesome. Yeah, see, <laughs> it's, a, it's even better than I remembered it. Now I think that's a I think that is a Hughes rather than a uh, rather than a Bell, but I think that's a very good looking helicopter. Yeah, very very good looking helicopter. Uh, so the reason that Blue Thunder had a had significance to me is that. In the very early 80s, maybe 1980, mm-hmm. I went through a phase where <laughs> my dad was, <laughs> what are you laughing at? I just am looking forward to hearing what the phase was that had to do with Blue Thunder Helicopter. That's Because, <laughs> uh, of course, you went through a phase that had to do with a helicopter. How could well, you? <laughs> it's not the helicopter exactly, but <laughs> I went through a period in Anchorage where I was getting active in local theater. And I think my dad was kind of pushing it, but also with with kids, you're always trying to figure out the thing that, that comports with their aptitude Mm -hmm. for them to do. Like I spent, I spent a decade standing as a fullback on a soccer field Never a halfback even, let alone a forward. Mm -hmm. I was a fullback always, which meant, and I was on a pretty good team uh, throughout grade school. Down here in Seattle, I was on the uh, King Tux Hurricanes. And then uh, in Anchorage, I was a member of the boys club. And so the fullback just kind of stands in front of the goal, kicking a hole in the dirt. (laughs) Stands over to the left, you know, uh, I was left fullback, stands over to the left of the goal, kicking the dirt until the, until the offense of the other team manages to break through and come storming down the field. And then you just kind of stand in their way. And if you're lucky, you can kick the ball really far back mm-hmm. down the field. Mm-hmm. And then you stand around and kick the dirt. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on parents to put your kids in soccer because it feels like it's a team sport. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a vaguely, it feels international to Americans. And it's like, oh, you put your kid in soccer and they'll be, then they'll grow up, you know, speaking French and then right. they'll fit they'll, right in, in, in any of the European union countries. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to go, they're going to go work at the Hague and, <laughs> and, uh, and they won't be, they won't be stuck in a boring life like I've been. But, but I spent, you know, all this time just standing on the freaking side, you know, standing in this, in the rain on a muddy field and uh, it was not, it was not a thing that probably I um, 
it wasn't a sport that I had any aptitude for. It wasn't a thing I would have chosen for myself. It was just like, what do you do with kids? You put them in soccer. (laughs) But my dad at a certain point was like, he's very theatrical. He talks about wanting to act and he does it all the time. So let's get him into acting. And so he, it wasn't really, I did some children's theater time, but then my dad started taking me to auditions for the Alaska repertory theater. And I went, um, I went and auditioned for, uh, let's see, I, I did a, I, I auditioned for a couple of plays that were full on adult plays. Everyone else in the cast was, was, uh, like a part of that actorly cast of traveling theatrical people who, who get cast in a play at the, Alaska Repertory Theater and they live in New York Mm -hmm. and they're like, well, I got a gig and they go up to Alaska and they play, you know, they play the role of, of uh, one of the sons of, you know, the stage manager of our town or whatever. And they're up there for the run of the play, which is a month or, you know, they're up there for rehearsals and then the run of the play. That was my introduction to that world of like itinerant actors. And no one ever thinks, you know, you think like, oh, I'm an actor. I work on Broadway. But there are all these repertory companies around the around the country and around the world. And they got they're, they're getting these big name actors from New York City. Uh, so anyway, I, I I auditioned for the role of one of the sons in An Enemy of the People. Um, I don't remember. It was like the older of the two sons. Like. Morton or somebody. And I really, you know, I was a little blonde boy. I really put, tried to really put a spin on my audition mm-hmm. and like, I'm going to get, this is going to be this sort of my, my entrance into the, the theatrical world. I'm going to, this I'm going to make a big splash. And then I did not get the part. Oh. And I was, I was pretty devastated about it. I couldn't believe that there was some other blonde kid in the whole state of Alaska that was a better actor yeah, than more me. qualified somehow, you know, and I probably did the audition with a fake British accent. Like <laughs> I was too theatrical, <laughs> even for theater. Right. I didn't, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, I hadn't, I hadn't done the due diligence of like, yeah, they probably don't want you to do an accent. Right. But you were, you probably showed up in character too. I, yeah. I mean, as, as, as much, as much as I understood Ibsen and had had read, I don't think I understood Ibsen or what he was really getting at at the age of 10. But about a week later, I got a call from someone at the Alaska Repertory Theater who said, well, we're really sorry that John didn't get the part in An Enemy of the People, but we do have a role for him in an upcoming production. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hooray! You know, like, ah, of course. they uh, They recognized... My brilliance, they probably wanted a dumber kid for the enemy of the people and not yeah. somebody that had as much flair as I did. Right, That's right, I did. right, right. They wanted somebody a little dumber. And so the part they offered me was as the newsboy in a traveling production called Hot L. Baltimore. And Hot L. Baltimore, and I, I, I haven't really ever thought of it this way, but Hot L. Baltimore may have played a large role in my in my life in the sense that it was a it was a play about the decline 
the like American decline, the the decline of the railroads, the it was um, it was written in the seventies. It took place in the early seventies, and it was commenting on that on that world of like everyone. So the so it so it takes place in the hotel Baltimore except the E on the sign has burned out. Ah, that makes sense. And so it's the hot L Baltimore and it's like an old SRO flop house style hotel that had formerly been a grand hotel Ah. close to the railroad station. This is a theme in your life. Yeah. And all the people that were living in the hotel were just the sort of cast offs of society, the old man and the, and the uh, hooker with a heart of gold and the, the front desk clerk that was like, you know, cynical, but wise and, you know, a character filled cast of, of, uh, lovable goofballs. But it was a drama too in, in that, you know, the railroads are closing up shop and, the and the, uh, the, the middle, the center of the city has no future. And at that point in time, the play was written in the mid seventies, right? There was no sign that there would ever be a future to the center of American cities. It was like, but everybody in the play and everybody watching the play knew, remembered a time when the, the steam locomotive was still, you know, when American industry and the cities were still grand and you, it was this touch, this touchback that for me in 1980, I was, I could feel it and it was already gone, but I could, but I could touch it Mm -hmm. and it really affected me being in this play. And, um, you know, and what it was, they had, they had interstitial music in the play. And one of the songs was, uh, the city of new Orleans by Arlo Guthrie. And that song is also about this same topic. And it, really grabbed me at the age of 10. I still, you know, I still get choked up listening to the city of new Orleans. Great, great song, not written by Arlo Guthrie, but, but he made the famous version anyway. So, so I get cast in this play and I'm there for all the rehearsals and I'm backstage in the, in the dressing room and there's nudity in the play. Really? The hooker with the heart of gold comes to the top of the staircase at one point screaming at some other guy in the cast and she's, she's dressed in a towel because she's come out of the, maybe she, I don't remember the plot, but maybe she came out of the, the hot water was off or something. She's yelling at the desk clerk. I don't remember who she was yelling at, but at a certain point she takes off her towel and starts whacking him with it. And she had, and you can see her boobs. So this was a very, how old? 10? I was 10, 10, 10 or 12. And so this was a big, this was a big, I was in a fully adult situation here. You know, the shows started at eight and, but it was incredible because I was the only kid in the cast and I became their mascot (laughs) and I was backstage with them sitting at the makeup table, putting on my makeup and listening to their gossip. And at one point, uh, you know, one of the actors taught me how to play chess. And so I would sit backstage and play chess with 
all these actors and chess was a thing that actors did right backstage and the and the rehearsals were went for weeks and then the show ran for weeks so i was like i was soaking in this culture all, all these people were from new york and los angeles they had all been it was like the goodbye girl it was it was precisely like richard dreyfus in the goodbye girl and at a certain point, you know, the, the, the climactic moment in The Goodbye Girl is that Richard Dreyfus gets some job back in the, he gets some job in the West. He has to go, he's making a movie or something. And he's, and he has to go, he's going to be gone for a long time. And the, and the, the star of Goodbye Girl, the, the, the mom is like, well, every time I fall in love with an actor, he's, he splits and I never see him again. And then, uh, I don't, spoiler alert, Goodbye Girl. If you haven't seen it, my God, go see Goodbye Girl or Brenton. It's in the show notes. But so these were the people I was backstage with, all these people that were basically Richard Dreyfus and the Goodbye Girl. And I was, it, it was just every night just blowing my mind. It, you know, men and women in the cast. And, uh, And I really felt like, is this my, is this my future? Is this my path? Should I drop out of, should I drop out of junior high? Um, and, and become an actor who's backstage playing chess and, and, and one of the, one of the things that had the greatest effect on me was that there was a palpable sadness to them. To the, the to the people behind stay backstage, the, the actors. Yeah, everyone. A lot of the conversation was about how hard it was to find work. They were all talking about whether they would get another job after this. At a, a, a couple of the actors came backstage at some point. And were like, "I got another job. I'm after this. I'm going to St. Louis." And everybody was like, "Yay!" <laughs> you know, and it just. But some of the actors didn't have another job after right, this, right. and and they all had. They were all talking about the, sort of their past glories. Like one time I was the, you know, I was in death of a salesman at the, at the off, off Broadway. And, you know, and there was this melancholy to everybody. And they all had headshots where they kind of looked a little plasticky and, and like the picture was taken a long time ago. So there was this, <laughs> there was this tremendous melancholy to everybody. But the guy who played the old man in the show was an actor named Jack Murdoch. And Jack Murdoch was recognizable. He was old. He was the oldest guy in the cast. And at the, I mean, he was, I think, my dad's age. So he was probably 60 at this point, but he, but he looked older. And at 60, he seemed old. He seemed older than my dad. Right. And he was, he was somebody you recognized and you weren't sure why, because he had been, he had been the old guy in a lot of movies or, you know, some, a, a bit, a bit player. So like he, Mer- you, did you recognize him at the time? Like from like some movie that you saw? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, I couldn't tell you where or when. Right, it wasn't he just like, had, he had like that, he had one of those faces. He was one of those guys. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was somebody you'd seen. 
And that was like, wow, startling to me that I was in this show with all these grownups. And one of them was like a fucking movie star. Mm -hmm. And Jack Murdoch was great to me. He was so nice. And we played chess all the time. And he was like, gave me grandfatherly advice. And sometimes I, you know, it would be startling that Jack Murdoch would also be, you know, he was an actor, a lifelong actor. So he was backstage playing with the other actors right. and it's sort of like, I was, uh, I should have played the Dane and all this, whatever the, the goofy life of an actor. But then he was also like kind of a fatherly guy. And I, I fell in love with everybody, everybody in the cast, but I, but Jack Murdoch was like my, he, he helped me quite a bit. Right. Well, so I mean, almost like a mentor. Well, yeah, except it was a short lived. It was, a, you know, a month that we all spent together. And I was a kid, too, so it's not like I went to the cast parties. I didn't go back to the hotel where they were all living and do whatever it was that actors, you know, what the other sad, desperate side of their lives. But I was with them every day. And the the, the tragedy for me was that the newsboy in hot L Baltimore does not have any lines. The newsboy is a reoccurring figure who comes in, <laughs> changes the newspapers in the paper box, you know, puts the paper, puts the newspaper on the desk of the right. front desk clerk. Like you're more the, than a prop, but not a, not a lot much, not yeah, much the, more. The newspaper boy signals the dawn of a new day. Right. 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 He, and the newspaper boy is the first person on the stage at the very beginning of the play. And it's a rainy day. And so I would stand backstage and they would douse me with water so that I was wet. <laughs> and then, you know, lights up on the stage. The front door of the hotel walks in and it's me in a newsboy cap carrying a big stack of newspapers. And I throw the wet newspaper on the guy's desk. Oh, yeah. The, that was the gag, right? I walked in and I was holding a newspaper over my head to keep the water off. Right. And then that's the, that would be his newspaper that that I give to the guy at the front desk. And then I change the newspapers in the box and then I'm out the door and that's the beginning of the move or beginning of the, the play. Uh, and then I reappear on the stage a couple of different times again, like signaling that it is dawn of a new day, but I had no lines. I realized very early on that this, that they had, they, we're throwing me a bone here. Like, ah, you didn't get into the Ibsen play where you had lines and you would have been, you know, you would have been a truly an actor. Right here. You are. Yeah. You're just sort of some, some cute window dressing, but you have to be there all night because you're, you reoccur in the play. You can't just do your thing and go home. Oh, right. And we couldn't have a robot do it <laughs> and we couldn't have a grown up do it. So, And they paid me, you know, they paid me whatever, $500, which at the time seemed like an extraordinary amount of money. Yeah. I mean, it was a month's worth of of work. Yeah. But but better than piano lessons, right? I mean, my dad was right. He's trying to find something for for his 10-year-old to do. And all of a sudden, I was in a play. And a lot of the kids from my school came to see me in the play. And I think we're both impressed and also, like, well, you didn't really have any lines. <laughs> right. You were up there, but. I was doing a thing. Yeah. 
I mean, and I think a lot of my friends came to see the play, but then they got hustled out before the before the, the girl showed her boots. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so Jack Murdoch, while we were doing Hot L Baltimore, came backstage and said, I gotta I got a gig after this. And everybody's like, Yay, Jack! What is it? And he's like, I'm doing a movie. It's called Blue Thunder. Oh man. With Roy Scheider. And it was like, Roy Scheider? He was in Jaws. Like, this is some shit. This is some Hollywood yeah, shit. Yeah, that's real. And everybody on the everybody in the cast was like, you know, Jack Murdoch is kind of the he's kind of the old dog here. He's kind of the, you know, he's uh of course he got a Hollywood movie. You know, that's a big payday. And so when Blue Thunder came out, obviously it was already in my wheelhouse, a secret oh yeah, super quiet helicopter that flies around LA taking the law into its own hands. Oh my god, I would have been there with bells on, but I was quadruple there because I wanted to see Jack Murdoch, a personal friend of mine. And then Jack Murdoch plays a role of a of like an old guy who's sitting at a radar screen. Right. Who turns around a couple of times and is like, as you know, something about the electrical systems over overheating, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, detective or, you know, sheriff or whatever. And Roy Scheider goes, you know, rewrite the encryption. And he's like, Roger that <laughs> few, you know, it's a, it's not a big part, but it's a typical sort of Jack Murdoch part. And uh, every time he came on the screen, I was like, oh, there he is. There he Jack is. Murdoch. It's totally my, totally my hero. And, and I, after that, whenever Jack Murdoch would appear, whenever I would see him at any point in time, yeah. that would be, you know, he was on an episode of cheers. He was on star Trek next generation. He was on Roseanne. Like I would see him pop up. Uh, and you know, and he it was on Hill Street Blues, like there were there were plenty of times that Jack Murdoch would you know sneak into the frame. Right. And uh I'm looking at his I am. I'm looking right yeah, now. I'm looking at it too. He was oh so Home he improvement, was, Roseanne. This is where I knew him from. Okay, now I'm looking at this, I see where I knew him from. He was a regular cast member on Operation Petticoat. And I was a devoted Operation Petticoat fan. He was in Moonlighting. But this like guy's he, been in everything. Yeah, he was in, but he was on one episode of Moonlighting. He was a regular a season. He was like a, a named character on Operation oh, Petticoat. Man. He appeared on on uh, Charlie's Angels. I mean, these are these are times when I would have seen him on TV. He was on Kojak. I would have I would have registered him, but then you bet I knew him from Operation Petticoat. Yeah. You bet I did. So so that's my connection to Blue Thunder, and you know, Blue Thunder became real. They used Blue Thunder, it was exactly Blue Thunder that they used to get Osama bin Laden. The real thing, not the one from the TV show. But I mean, if you look at Blue Thunder if you look at what blue thunder purported to be in 1983, they had finally achieved that technology. Although right. blue thunder could go quiet 
with the flip of a switch. So this Remember is that? this is what people maybe the, our younger audience isn't familiar with with Blue Thunder. I'm sure they're not. I bet people our age aren't familiar with it because it was not. It wasn't. It wasn't a show. It, it wasn't really that big. I mean, Blue Thunder. If I'm remembering this correctly, it was a helicopter that was a military helicopter that, like you say, you could, you could flip a switch and it would put it into stealth mode. Stealth. So it was silent or nearly silent. And I, if I remember right, there were some limits on what it could do when it was in silent mode. Like, could it? It couldn't go quite at top speed, that kind of thing. But it could. It could be in silent mode, and then they, when they were ready, they could. Just kind of burst onto the scene with the with the chopper and do what the thing was that they needed to do. I could, was it invisible to radar, or am I just adding that? Well, in- so this is this is the thing that you are you are misremembering one key element. Okay, which is that it was not a military helicopter; it was a Los Angeles Police Department. Is that so? secret? You know, project. I must. I might be confusing this a little bit with Airwolf. Oh, Airwolf, different deal. Different deal. Airwolf they, was that military. Was that not military either. I think I thought that one was. I feel like I feel like I never watched Airwolf because it, Airwolf felt like it was in the category of A Team Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, which, it which, says the program centers on a high tech military helicopter codenamed Airwolf. So I'm sure I was. There was something, <laughs> like, I'm sure the pilot of it was like a Vietnam vet, right? Ernest Borgnine was in that show. Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> But we were always, during the early 80s, we were always trying to find things for Vietnam vets to do in right. TV shows and films. Like, right. he's a Vietnam vet, but he's, and every once in a while, he'll have a flashback, and that'll make, it, that'll be a real plot twist, because he's like, ah, I can't handle it. I'm flashing back to Vietnam. In a but U.S. Actually, Army mission during the Vietnam War, Stringfellow oh, was separated from St. John's. <laughs> so, yes, he was, he was indeed in the, in the Vietnam War. There is no, I swear to you right now, there is no film that takes place in the 1980s where there is a helicopter, where there is an, also a Vietnam vet that's occasionally having flashbacks. Yeah. I think that there, that should actually be like, that should be one of the laws of television, right? Like, I just remember how cool the, the Blue Thunder helicopter was compared. The Airwolf was not as cool. Not as cool. It's well, a Bell so, 222 is what that one was. What's interesting about Blue Thunder is that it was it sort of uh, foreshadowed all of the films about or all the films and television shows and actual real life stories about how the Los Angeles Police Department had become a kind of paramilitary organization that that often took the law into its own hands. And Blue Thunder is one of the first films where because the whole idea of it is with the with the enormous power of this of this quiet helicopter, I think Roy Scheider is the good guy, but there are other elements in the LAPD that want to use this helicopter to what spy on civilians, do bad things, right. take do, over the do city. terrible thing, take over the, the city. The cops are taking over. It's a coup d'etat, <laughs> something, something like that. And then, you know, later on, you've got all your LAPD, movies like colors right right i remember that where the lapd is the the lapd is a is a main character in the film yeah uh so but but blue thunder the movie came out in 83 and i was very much so 1983 i was 14 going on 15 
it was a couple of years after I had done the play. So, mm-hmm. you know, it took a, takes a while to, to make a movie, obviously. But when Blue Thunder, the TV show came out, I was fully 15 or 16 and not about to go on record as watching a TV show about a helicopter. You know, by the time you're 16, you're like, I'm listening to the White Album, man. Oh, yeah. I'm not I'm not watching Dukes of Hazard no. like a little kid. No. Or A-Team. I, I never watched a full episode of A-Team because I was like, if I was, if I had been 10, oh, I, I would have been all about A-Team. And see, I think I, I'm trying, I'll have to look this up. But I was, I loved the A-Team. It was from 83 to 87 was the A-Team. Yeah. And that would have, that would have put me at about 11, 12 years old. So I was right. I was right in there. Yeah. I graduated from high school in 86. So right. it, like to be watching A-Team as a senior in high school, and I knew yeah, plenty of guys could. that did, but come on. Yeah. Come on. Well, so, it got bad after the first two or three seasons. Anyway. Well, it was bad from the beginning, but, but, uh. But, you know, like um, Mr. T became a cultural icon. Sure. Mr. T, I mean, Nancy Reagan sat on Mr. T's lap. <laughs> Mr. T was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mr. Think about that. Yeah. Think about, think about, eight, we, he, know, was we in the, at, he was in the Rocky movies. He was in Rocky. That's right. I mean, Mr. T was legitimized by that massively influential and intellectual franchise rocky that was a big deal to me growing in philadelphia when the first oh, sure. rocky movie came out like that was you're too young to remember the first Rocky. no not at all loved that movie i remember my friend greg greg got to see it first but i mean rocky came out in the 70s right yeah. you were just a little kid yeah but it was i mean it, that was a core movie for me growing up 76 i was what five yeah I saw it. It was wow. great. Wow. But it was Philadelphia. He was running around my neighborhood. He was jogging around my neighborhood. Right. I guess so. I guess so. Jogging around my neighborhood. And he was running up the steps of the art museum that I'd run up. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had to run up right after the, I saw that movie. <laughs> and ever since then, and ever since every then. single visitor to Philadelphia runs up them. Yeah. Now there's a statue of Rocky at the top of those stairs. They, they have moved it. They have moved it. Oh, they did. They did they, move it. They moved it over into the bushes? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, it is northeast of the steps now over to the side. You can, so if you're, like, if you're facing where you would run up the steps, it's kind of yeah. like back and back and to the left. So the back and, and to, to the left. left. So the city of Philadelphia <laughs> finally got some dignity is what you're saying? <laughs> well. <laughs> like, here's this fantastic art museum, one of the greatest art museums in the in the Americas. Yeah. And we're going to put this clown act oh. at the top of the stairs oh i know it's a great american film the uh great. the the fresh prince of bel-air ran up the steps too mm-hmm. so <laughs> the important things smell you later i feel city, like city commerce director dick doran claimed that stallone and rocky had done more for the city's image than anyone since ben franklin well that says a lot yeah. about philadelphia yeah i know no, no, no. Great American city. Great American city. The, the, the only equivalent to that in Anchorage, <laughs> right? You've got, you've, I mean, Philadelphia is absolutely a star of Rocky, yes, right? It's, yes. it's like, it should be co-billed <laughs> yeah. starring Sylvester Stallone and the city of Philadelphia. We never, we never really got that in Anchorage. 
There was the Michelle Shocked song, Anchored Down in Anchorage. I remember her. Which was, for a lot of people, the only thing they could think of when someone said Anchorage. Like, I would say, when, when, for instance, I said Anchorage. Like, I would be down in America, and I would say, yeah, I'm from Alaska. And they'd go, where? And I would go, Anchorage, knowing what was about to happen. And they would go, Anchored Down in Anchorage. (laughs) And I'd say, yep, yeah, that's it. You, that, that's the one thing you know. Anchored down in Anchorage. Uh, so there was that. Anchored down in Anchorage. Uh, there was Northern Exposure, the television show. Yes. Which introduced a lot of people to the idea of Alaska. Although the show was filmed in Washington and doesn't look like Alaska at all. So there was a lot of mixed feelings in Alaska about Northern Exposure because there was actually a radio show in Anchorage where people would call in the next morning after the new episode of Northern exposure had aired. They would call in and the whole point of the radio show was just to dissect the show in all the ways it wasn't like Alaska. People would call in and say, there was a, there was some bird song from birds that don't live in Alaska. (laughs) There was, there's a weed growing by the side of the road that does not, that does not grow in Alaska. And the hosts of the radio show would, you know, egg people on. And, uh, you know, that was sort of Alaska's Alaska's feeling about that show. But that became another thing where people that I would meet down in America would say, oh, Northern Exposure, like, are all Alaska bush pilots, like, really fine chicks? <laughs> fine. I mean, like, yeah, they're super fine. All of them. Every bush pilot I know is super fine. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them... <laughs> A lot of them uh, are like um, French trappers. If you think French trappers with little mustaches, if you think that's right. really super fun. Right. And then the third thing, and this was actually the one good thing, because Anchor Down in Anchorage was fine and Northern Exposure was fine. I didn't, you know, I didn't engage really strongly with either of those things. But there was a movie filmed, not in Anchorage, but in Girdwood which was the which was the town where the ski resort was that I actually sort of very strongly identified with as sort of my quasi hometown because we had a place in Girdwood that was the little town that I that I felt most strongly connected to they filmed this movie partly in Girdwood you can see the ski hill in the background they're standing on the road they're standing in front of the little mercantile store where mm-hmm where you would get your sundries. Well, I mean your food, right? The mercantile was like, the, it was the little country store where you would get your box of macaroni and cheese and, um, you know, and like a Jojo and they're standing in front of it during one scene pointing at a railroad that isn't there. But then the, the, the whole, the whole film took place. It was filmed on the Alaska railroad. And my dad was the chief counsel of the Alaska Railroad. It was like they were making a movie in my yard. And it stars John Voight and Eric Roberts. And it's, you know, it's, it's gritty in a way that like it's, it's, it was more, it was a lot grittier than Silver Streak. Although it basically has the same plot as Silver Streak. I don't know if you remember Silver Streak. I don't really. Silver Streak. 
was the movie about a runaway train starring Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. And this that movie sounds familiar, but that movie was very had a very strong imprint on me. Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor on a on a train running out of control. They were a like comedy duo for a little while. They had a number of movies that they were in together. Yeah, and I feel like Silver Streak was the first. Oh, they were it was bank robbers. Yeah, there were a couple that were good, and then and then they took the they took the idea too far, and then there were a couple that were bad. But Silver Streak was the was the, I think the good one, the best one. And uh, you know, I was a big fan of it, but now Runaway Train, ten years later, turns it into a real gritty drama that takes place in Alaska about a train running out of control by train, by plane, by the edge of your seat. It's the most hilarious suspense ride of your life. Oh, you're talking about silver, silver street. Well, now, <laughs> so, so, so this was a, this was the era of seventies comedies that actually were also dramas or mysteries. Uh-huh. Let's call them mysteries. Um, where it's, a, you know, it's like a, there are a lot of jokes. It's fun, but at the core of it, there's a um, there's like an actual suspenseful mystery where people are where characters are getting killed, like the movie Foul Play, starring Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn. Yeah, Foul Play, a comedy. Goldie Hawn, one of the great comedic actors of our time. Chevy Chase, briefly one of the great comedic actors. Mm-hmm. He was basically, I think. I think I will say of Chevy Chase that he was one of the great comedic actors of 1978. I I liked him a lot. I definitely think he peaked, but I was a big fan of his for a long time. And I know I've seen this movie, Foul Play, and I'm looking at the cover of it, and it's got Chevy Chase in a in a is very weird cover. I'm gonna I'm gonna send this to you. I'm gonna paste this to you in our chat window over there on your phone. Uh-huh. He's wearing a a trench coat, right? And he's got Goldie Hawn is sort of behind him, hugging him from behind, uh, uh-huh. reaching her hands around him, and he's got what looks like a a a, a gun. It's very phallic. He's holding it's bursting through the front pocket or the front of his trench coat in a very phallic way, and it's firing. The gun is firing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Are you seeing this? Yeah, well, that's part of what makes it foul. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, he's got his secret. He's got his gun in his pocket and he's, you know, so the story of foul play is very interesting because Chevy Chase at the beginning of Saturday Night Live, which started, what, the year before, 77? Yeah, that sounds Chevy, right. Chevy Chase was the breakout star. Stir Crazy. That was the movie I was thinking of. Oh, Stir Crazy mm. is the other good one. Yeah. With the, with with Gene, uh, Gene Wilder, yeah, <laughs> Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, yep. but but that came after Silver Streak. Silver Streak was the was the thing where it was, and I think it was an accident, right? They they Silver Streak was a was a movie that was maybe designed around Richard Pryor, and then they he he needed a he needed a sidekick or a foil, and somehow whoever it was that they had intended, maybe it was Charles Grodin or something that they intended for the job. <laughs> right, yeah. And then he couldn't do it. And so Gene Wilder filled in. And then all of a sudden these two guys had this incredible chemistry. Oh uh, yeah. Because I personally feel like Gene Wilder is, I don't want to overstate the, this whole greatest actor of our time thing, but he is 
Gene Wilder is tremendous. He was a great gift to America. Um, anyway, so Chevy Chase was the breakout star of early Saturday Night Live, the total hero. Nobody, I mean, Belushi, people liked Belushi, sure. People like Dan Aykroyd, just fine. But it was, you know, it was Chevy Chase. Bill Murray wasn't on the show yet. Chevy Chase was the guy. Yeah. And he left Saturday Night Live to make the film Foul Play because it was widely understood that Chevy Chase was going to be a big, big, big star. Yeah. And he, you know, and, and Saturday, he was the first guy to leave Saturday Night Live to go do movies. And he did Foul Play, which was a hit. And he had all this chemistry with Goldie Hawn. I think they made another movie after that that was just a stinker and tanked. And then Chevy Chase did so much cocaine that, I mean, say what you will about the Fletch movies and the and National Lampoon's Vacation, where Chevy Chase is pretty darn good, let's say. But he just, he never recaptured the kind of smart, oh, and Caddyshack, right? He did make some good movies in the 80s that were good if you were a kid. Yeah. Or like, like a 15-year-old. Yeah. Early, early to mid teens. Yeah. Right. Chevy if Chase. Were, Chevy Chase was your guy. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, that's safe to say because if you just named off a bunch of the vacation movies, which I loved as, as especially the first one as a kid, Caddyshack was, uh, you couldn't, you couldn't really overstate how important Caddyshack was for kids of, of my age, probably of your age at that time. Yeah. It Although was, it is, it's an utterly plotless movie. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a strange, it's sort of like, wouldn't it be funny if I walked on, on camera and like said this to a person, wouldn't that be funny? And then like, if we had Rodney Dangerfield, like shop in a golf store, wouldn't that be funny? Let's just make a movie around these different scenes. We'll go, yeah, we right. have ideas for scenes. Yeah. It felt like, it felt like a sketch comedy that yeah. you know, where they hadn't really thought it through right? and they didn't need to. They got and, the girl from Tron in there. I mean, it was a great. I had a big crush on her. Can't remember. The girl from Tron. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. What was her name? I've That's got a, a, I really she played Lacey in the uh, in the in the original film. I'm looking at the cast right now. Hold on. It's going to take me. So Cindy Morgan. Cindy Morgan. Cindy Morgan. But this was, you know, like I, I'm looking at it now. Caddyshack was written by. By Doug Kenny, uh-huh. and Doug Kenny was famous as the genius behind National Lampoon's right. It was National, National Lampoon, Lampoon thing. The National Lampoon magazine. Doug Kenny was the was the guy from Harvard who was sort of widely regarded as the as the unhinged genius of National Lampoon, <laughs> which was a hugely influential magazine. And then, so Doug Kenny, but Doug Kenny never quite became what Harold Ramis did become, which is, you know, Harold Ramis directed all these fantastic films. And I think Doug, Doug Kenny died young. Um, but so Harold Ramis directed it, Doug Kenny wrote it basically. Oh, and I'm seeing here co-written by Brian Doyle Murray. Oh, Bill Murray's brother. Brother. Who I always thought was just like, um, just like a hanger on, like, like, uh, who's the, who's the other, he, he was, uh, he's a writer. He, he was in a number of movies with Bill Murray. Yeah. But I always thought it was like, uh, 
Bill Murray's brother, or I mean, Bill Murray is so great that like, let's extend his fame a little bit to his brother. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I think there was definitely like, an aspect like of that. Jim Belushi. Like, why the hell is Jim Belushi around? Because his brother yeah, his was brother. so amazing. Yeah. Uh, but apparently, Brian Dole Murray also co-wrote Caddyshack. So I'm not sure if that's an endorsement of you as a writer or All what. Right. Check your uh, check your phone. Oh, you're going to send me more I stuff. Send here. you a couple important photos. But yeah, I feel like the you know the movie where I lost Chevy Chase was a movie called Modern Problems. Yes, yes, a strange. I've seen that many, many times. You have? Yes, many, many times. This is Why? uh yeah. That's a good question. I really <laughs> liked. I would think I was nine or ten years old when this thing came out, right? Era, like nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty one. Eighty one. Yeah. Okay, so I was like I was like ten or eleven. And he got powers. He had cool powers. He did get powers. It was that was like who doesn't as a kid, as a ten year old kid, every morning I would wake up and say, Today is the day I'm gonna get powers. <laughs> like I'm gonna have powers. I don't know what they are, but something's gonna happen. Radioactive liquid is gonna pour out of the back of a truck and it's gonna land on me and I'm gonna get these crazy powers. That's what happened to him. And uh, it was very exciting. I was very disappointed in the end of that movie because it seemed like he didn't like the powers. He didn't want, sorry, spoiler alert, but he winds up giving the powers to the, uh, to the lady. He goes up and I think he's on top. He ties himself. He gets struck by lightning and lightning goes down and through him into, takes his powers away and gives them to the woman that was sitting there. Ye gods. And I'm like, Nell, uh, Nell Thompson. No. Nell Carter. Nell Carter. Was that her? She's in that movie. Then that's, also, that's who got the powers. Did also, you, Brian Doyle Murray, also in that movie. <laughs> Why wouldn't you want powers? I feel like... I'm serious. If you had the chance to have the powers, why wouldn't you get the powers? Yeah, but you're talking about greatest American hero stuff. Like, that's the power. Yes, and, but he lost the instruction book. That he lost killed the instruction me. Book to the suits. And he never spent any time trying to figure it out. Spent no time trying to figure it out. No, because the, because the whole plot was, what? Uh, I can't use the magic suit. Wackadoodle. That was a good show. That was a great show. Yeah. That was a TV show uh, from the same era. Greatest American hero. I love that <laughs> show. I this, still to this day. This picture you sent me show. of Chevy Chase in his tennis whites uh-huh. <laughs> uh, with uh, with your girlfriend. Yeah. Who's wearing pants with like 40 <laughs> pleats in them. I'm not. I'm not a fan of those pants. But uh, but yeah, that is a that's really a classic of the time. Oh yeah. But I watched Modern Problems in the theater because I was just <laughs> I was thirteen or whatever and could go to see it. And I, I that was maybe one of the first movies that I was like, this is appalling. This is appalling because you can because the cocaine had Dabney that, Coleman. Well, and I love a Dabney Coleman. Yeah. But the cocaine that it's just it's just oozing out of modern problems. Everyone on the cast is on cocaine and everyone doing the writing and directing. They're all on cocaine. <laughs> and so it just felt like I didn't even know. Was that evident cocaine. to you at a, as a 13 year old? It was evident to me that like, OK, the adults who are involved in the making of this thing do not. They are losing their minds or they don't know what's going on. This is not what is funny about this is like also really embarrassing or like hard, hard to watch. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge was the movie. So Bill Murray came on to the cast of Saturday Night Live somewhat to replace Chevy Chase, although they overlapped one another for a year, I think. Um, 
and hated each other's guts. My understanding was okay, and and they added Bill Murray to Caddyshack at the very last minute. And my sense is that Bill Murray completely ad libbed everything that he did on Caddyshack and kind of walked away with the movie, like stole the show. If you look at the Caddyshack poster, Bill Murray is just slightly bigger than everybody else. And he's just he's in the back, but his head is just slightly bigger. And it's like Bill Murray kind of stole that movie. Yeah. Which was supposed to be a Chevy Chase starring vehicle. Right. And it was another. I mean, <laughs> I'm looking at this now. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And they already <laughs> hated each other. And so all of the scenes, all of the scenes, like Bill Murray's behind Chevy Chase. His head should be smaller. Right. Just perspective. But his head is slightly it's bigger. Bigger, isn't it? And, and if, if go, that is a freakish cover, too. Yeah. You're like, what's going on in this poster like how can bill murray be he's he's literally looming over chevy yeah yeah he is and and to know that they despise each other and in that and they only appear in that one i love you're always finding the hidden dynamic behind something like you were talking about with like the prince and the tom petty thing and and now this it's like you're you're you 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 find that somehow Mm. the hidden dynamic man that's what it's all about yeah but if you think about caddyshack there's that one scene where they're together uh, Chevy Chase comes and visits Bill Murray. Yeah, in- the pool, pool or pond. Pond would yeah. be good for you. <laughs> yeah, right. That one. Hilarious. Yeah. Hilarious. But 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 to know that they are actively despising each other and trying to trying to sh- like disable one another in that scene just makes it so much funnier. What was what like really kicked that off the 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 hatred or the animosity? Well, because I think. I think. And did they uh, ever reconcile? No, I don't think that you reconcile with Bill Murray. I think that Bill Murray says, uh, you know, Bill Murray's very hard to reach. And Chevy Chase, obviously, like one of the worst people in the universe. Uh, pretty clearly from watching that TV show that he's on, where uh, that's about the. That's about the the uh, community college. Yeah, community, I think. Community, right? I have not watched that show. Um, like the, I think what happened was Chevy Chase, obviously big star, very handsome guy, Bill Murray, sort of pockmarked face, a little bit like weird gangly. And when Bill Murray was first added to Saturday night live, he wasn't given a lot of, he was kind of a bit player, a background player. Mm. He didn't come in and take over Chevy Chase's place. He right. just sort of was uh, he was in the cast. And so there was a lot of, you know, a lot of animosity between them there. And then they had a famous backstage fight. Um, and And I think Chevy Chase was like, I'm the star of this show. I'm a dick. Uh, I'm a dick. I'm basically like always a dick. Uh, but I'm, I'm being a super big dick to Bill Murray because he's, um, he's like a, he's like a, a, a nobody. And Bill Murray was trying to fill his shoes and, and everybody loved Chevy chase and nobody really, nobody got, 
Bill Murray. I guess, I guess they never overlapped on the show, but Chevy Chase would come back to the show and guest host it and stuff. Oh, right. And, um, and so there was some scene there was, there was, there was some scene where they actually like, like they, they fought each other backstage. Um, and the, 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 the funny line, the one that makes it famous is that they're backstage fighting each other. They're screaming at each other. And Bill Murray, Bill Murray says medium talent. <laughs> like that was his insult to throw at Chevy medium talent. <laughs> and like, what a fucking wounding thing to say. Uh, You're backstage with, with, with another actor. He's the big star. He's there guest hosting the show. You're like the young nobody so far. Right. Like you haven't, and you're just like medium talent. Oh, I just feel like that's one of the greatest things. If you haven't read it, there's a book that's a, that's one of the original oral histories, maybe the first oral history, which now has become uh, like a, like, it's a trope in publishing the oral history of uh, Battlestar Galactica or the oral history of, uh, of the Clinton administration or something where they just get everybody together, interview everybody and then fit all their little stuff, fit all their quotes and comments together into what reads like a narrative. But one of the earliest oral histories, the first one I ever heard of was the oral history of Saturday night live. And it's a very thick book but it is endlessly entertaining because you have all these really funny people and all the people behind the scenes, the writers and Lorne Michaels and everybody. And they really do get everybody who's still alive to talk very candidly about what it was like on Saturday night live. Yeah. Have you read this book? No, I need to get it. Tell me the full name of the the book. I'll put it in our show notes. I think it's just the oral history of Saturday night live. I'm sure if you Google that, it'll, it'll, it'll come up. But like what makes it amazing is that they're shit talking each other a lot. Uh, And, and because it's an oral history, right? Somebody will be like, well, you know, Chevy chase was a, was a real asshole and uh, nobody liked him. And it was, and we were glad to see him go. And then the next line will be Chevy chase saying, I really felt like it was time to get out of there. Those guys were dragging me down and like the, 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 the grittiest part of the book is around the Janine Garofalo era. Oh yeah. Pretty much everybody in the cast of the time is like Janine Garofalo is awful. She was awful to work with. She was just like, every time she walked into the room, it was just like the, the whole, all the comedy just drained out of it. And then Janine Garofalo is like, that is the most misogynist boys club uh, in there. It was, you know, they were just such a bunch of swinging dicks and, and like what a lame place and what a lame time. And you really, you just, you, you feel like you're right in the room with them. Like they still all don't Could it like be live them. from New York. The complete uncensored history of Saturday Night Live is told by its stars, writers and guests. Yes, I believe that is okay. the thing. Uh, Unless there are show. two of them. No, <laughs> that is the one. That is it. Oh my God. It's, 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 it's a, because it's a great like bathroom book. You put it in the bathroom and every time you go in and you're spending a little time in the bathroom, you read two pages of this book and you must've finished it in a, a day or two. 
Yeah. Well, I think we took it on tour with us. Oh, nice. Because on tour, you you know, you read the like up and down with the Rolling Stones and you read the oral history of the of Black Flag or whatever. I mean, there are a lot of books that every band on tour kind of passes around. Get this dog-eared book. And then you, you're on tour with somebody or you meet another band in a rest stop and you're like, hey, uh, here you go. You guys get, you can take up and down with the Rolling Stones. And they're like, great, here's the uh, oral history of Saturday Night Live. And you just it's it's stuff that you can read as you're driving down the road. But that uh, that whole era of that generation of comedians and the movies that they all tried to to make, like some of them. That era is so powerful on me right like like what was the what was the first bill murray starring film it was it was the one about uh the the summer camp meatballs meatballs like if you watch meatballs now it is barely no, funny. you can't watch it you can't watch <laughs> it don't don't listeners don't <laughs> it is barely barely funny but he's amazing in it and it w- and it reflected the 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 era um and uh, you know and it's like the sexual awakening yes. and high hijinks and stuff oh that movie and and animal house i mean yeah, these things animal like house. they made blues brothers they made me who i am today all that that saturday night live stuff but then that shit went downhill so fast oh and the razor's edge was bill murray's dramatic moment doing doing Somerset mom in film Mm -hmm. in film (laughs) and uh that movie is unwatchable just like (laughs) just like so awful and this was this was the big the high budget thing where like Bill Murray's going to become a dramatic star and I think it might have even set his movie career back really 10 years because because the next the, the movie that made him was Groundhog Day Right, but because he had done uh, the the army one, stripes. He'd done stripes. I I have to think. Razor's Edge came after Stripes, did it? God, Razor's I hate Edge is eighty four. Razor's yeah. Edge and Stripes is eighty one. Yeah. See, so he was he was rolling hard through the early eighties. Bill Murray, big big you know big uh, star for the kids and the doing big box office numbers, and then he. Then he went and did this, his big dramatic thing in 84. And I'm not sure that he made another film. Oh, wait, what am I talking about? Ghostbusters. Uh, Ghostbusters was, I mean. Also 84, right? But at that point, he was a big, big name in, in, a, in a movie sense. And that was 1984. And the funny thing about Ghostbusters, and I don't know why, I don't know why. But Ghostbusters is my is my set point. You uh, mean there's pre Ghostbusters and post Ghostbusters. Yeah. So like if if somebody if somebody says to me, "Oh, what year was this?" I have to kind of roll how or how old were you when the, I have to kind of roll it back to Ghostbusters to 1984. And if it it. If it was before, oh yeah, well that I was little because that was before Ghostbusters, or I was you know, in junior high that was after you. <laughs> For some reason, it's Ghostbusters. Yeah, I don't know why there were a lot of good movies in 1984. Oh God, he was in Tootsie too. He was. Yeah, he was in Tootsie. He's the friend. He's oh. like the best friend. 
of Tootsie. You know, I think I, Groundhog Day would also one of my all time great movies, very Buddhist movie. Uh, but I, I absolutely love that movie. It still holds up. He's great in it. It's just mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And I can still sit down if that's on TV. I'll, I'll watch that anytime that's on. Well, so for me, that that like turning point, uh, that tentpole is nineteen eighty. If if anybody says anything about any time, right? I go back to nineteen eighty and either count back or count forward. What what goes? And that's funny because you're like three four years older than me, right? So mm-hmm. so that you you have like the same age set point. Right. That's interesting. Nineteen eighty. I was. It was uh, sixth and seventh grade. Right. Nineteen eighty was uh, in the fall of nineteen eighty. I started seventh grade. So, it's this demarcation from youth to yeah whatever that middle period is. <laughs> yeah. And it also was a very like culturally a big cutoff. The the seventies were disco and sideburns and bell bottoms and the eighties were new wave and, and uh modern bleep blop and Randy Newman's cars. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it was it. And, and in, in Alaska punk rock and new wave and Debbie Harry and all that stuff. Like it was, it was edging in, in 78, 79, but, but Anchorage didn't have cable TV yet. Anchorage in 1979 still was kind of, you know, we were still getting our eggs from Seattle Oh, by boat. You know, it was, Alaska was still an island, but in 1980, 81, all of a sudden, like t- cable TV came in and we had access to America in real time. And it, it had a big effect on Alaska, like a new wave punk rock. TV all sort of felt like it arrived at the same moment. And so 80 and, and some of that must be that I also was in seventh grade. So I was picking stuff up for the first time, but like the wall came out that year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a big year. Yeah. So I go back to 1980 and I'm like, I was in sixth grade in the, in the spring and I was in seventh grade in the fall and I can, I was I was alive and in my mind then so I can put context around things. In I want 76 I was still, you know, a kid and I can I can I can say like yeah, I was 8 years old but but listen, what, listen what, what do I know? John, listen to this. I'm just going to read down there's 50. I won't read all 50, but just li- I'll read a few. Listen to the the films that were released in 1980. The Shining. <laughs> Caddyshack. Airplane, uh, airplane empire strikes back let's stop let's stop on airplane for a second and just pay <laughs> homage yeah. to airplane what a great movie uh, is it still good have you seen it I recently know. i don't want to watch it i'm sure you want to keep the memory but i airplane i mean i just i peed myself oh yeah because it was a it airplane was like was like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy for me to open Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy the first time and read the first book the first time, I never laughed so hard. Yeah, and I never. It was like a. Uh, it was like a door opened on a new form of comedy, a new idea of humor for me. Whatever the voice of 
that first Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that that voice and that mentality inside his mind was a new place for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I never wanted to go back to the old world. It all the world went from black and white to color. (laughs) Right. It's like Dorothy. Yeah. And even (laughs) by the third, I read all three of those books. Um, I don't know. There might be 14 books, but I read three of them. And even by the third book, the voice had lost its novelty. I still enjoyed it, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't a miracle anymore. But like by the end of the first book, I never wanted that to end. I started reading the second book as soon as I put the first one down. Cause I was just like, don't ever let me leave this. Right. Which was why the movie of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was such a disappointment. Uh, terrible movie. Not funny no, at all. Not, it's the worst. Zoe Deschanel though. Well, I'm more, you know, she's on the one side and you got Katy Perry on the other side because mm-hmm. they're kind of the same person. Mm-hmm. I go to the Katy Perry side. Is that right? Yeah, but I see why you're a Zoe Deschanel. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Well, you know, I, I knew her briefly or I, 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 I can't say that I know her because I haven't seen her in, in several years, but I knew her yeah. fairly well. Not fairly well, but like well enough. She sure. was married to a friend of mine. And uh, she said to, one time that um, she had gone to a baseball game and was sitting in the stands and the people all around her were like, it's her, it's her, oh my God. And people Katie coming Perry. over and wanting her autograph. And she was like, I'm not who you think I am. And they were like, yes, you are. I'm a huge fan. She was like, I don't think I'm who you think I am. They were like, yeah, you're Katy Perry. And she, she said, at that point, at least... This this was before her TV show. Yeah. Oh, right. At that point, everywhere she went, people thought she was Katy Perry, and, and she had a good sense of humor about it. But can you imagine? Yeah. But you prefer Katy Perry. Yeah, she's from Florida, you know. Oh uh, yeah, but there's something very Florida in her eyes. Yeah. When I look yeah. into her eyes, and I know I you s- don't mean that as a compliment. <laughs> I see. I see <laughs> deep, deep Florida happening. Yeah. Yes. And with with <laughs> Zoe, at least there's like. You get a feeling of Topanga Canyon at the Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So let me let okay, me continue just to pa- paint this picture. Airplane, uh, Empire Strikes Back, Friday the 13th, Flash Gordon, oh. the Blues Brothers, oh. the Blue Lagoon, Elephant Man, Raging Bull, Jesus. 9 to 5, Incredible. Superman 2, which was still good, Popeye. Sorry. Popeye, I loved. Well, fame. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Urban Cowboy. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm skipping, starting to skip now. American Gigolo, Big Red yeah. One. Uh, oh, you can't forget Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John. When was all that jazz? Altered, oh God, that movie. Altered States. Yeah, Altered States. Stir Crazy. Smokey and the Bandit Part 2. Yeah. And you can tell if somebody has seen it or not, because if they call it Smokey and the Bandit 2, they haven't seen it. It's Smokey and the Bandit <laughs> Part 2. Uh, any Which Way You Can, which was the Any Which right. Way But Loose, all of those. Sequel, right? The che- uh, che- Clint Eastwood and a Monkey. Yep. Che- which I don't understand. Uh, Cheech and Chong's next movie. Sorry, not Monkey, Orangutan. Orangutan. Yeah, you got to know. I don't want, the, I don't want do people that. yelling at me. Uh, uh, Cheech Private, and Chong's next movie. Private Benjamin. Sure. And we'll end it with My Bodyguard, which had Matt Dillon in it, his first That was movie. Matt Dillon, mm-hmm. right. Now, this, so this is your set point. 
But just think about the different feeling between 1980, your set point, and 1984, my set point. Listen to these different movies and how different these movies feel from Airplane. Yeah. 16 Candles, (gasps) Ghostbusters, Purple Rain, Karate Kid, Nightmare on Elm Street, Terminator, Beverly Hills Cop, Footloose, Never Ending Story. Sorry about that one. Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, Amadeus, Once Upon a Time in America, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Dune, Gremlins, Police Academy, Children of the Cord, This is Spinal Tap, 1984, Conan the Destroyer, Red Dawn, Revenge of the Nerds, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, Splash, Philadelphia Experiment, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, great anime film, Romancing the Stone, Body Double, Top Secret, 2010, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Legend of Tarzan, Starman, The Last Starfighter, Bachelor Party, The Natural, Night of the Comet, Killing Fields, Blood Simple, Against All Odds, Repo Man, Cotton Club, Firestarter, Toxic Avenger, and Johnny Dangerously. Good God! Isn't that crazy? I mean, what's incredible about 1984, as you list those movies, is that some of those movies (laughs) feel way more modern than 84. Yeah. Like that, that, that if you had listed those movies and said, what year did they come out? I never would have said that they all came out at the same time because no, I know they feel completely different. Yeah. Some of them feel really still very contemporary. Some of them feel super old. (laughs) Like which one, what feels new and what feels old to you from that list? Well, like killing fields. Yes. Or, or, uh, I mean, obviously ghostbusters is. 84 yeah and and yet like purple rain (laughs) i know it takes place in 84 but it but it feels ahead of that yeah it feels it feels it feels newer and more contemporary than that right and like the Um, terminator although the effects compared to what we have today aren't aren't amazing that movie's still a really good movie well yeah and 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 hella influential yeah Still in, I mean, I talk about Skynet just as we all do. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Kind of all the time. Yeah. And so. Buckaroo Banzai, I mean, that movie is still one of my all-time favorite movies. Is that right? Yeah. Have you seen that one? Well, of course. Did you see it in the theater in 3D? Well, I didn't see it in 3D. It was 3D. But uh, I Buckaroo Banzai was one of those films that really divided people my age mm. because there were a lot of people that felt like Buckaroo Banzai was was the greatest film. <laughs> I wouldn't there, go that far. There were, I mean, it was very influential, you know, uh, on on kids. Yeah. But I was on the other side. I did not get Buckaroo Banzai. I didn't. I just didn't get it. I did not get it. And I enjoyed that movie. I, I, I don't know why I liked it so much. And I still don't know why I like it so much. It was weird in a way that things weren't weird at that time, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it was very, there were a lot of movies at that time as there are now about like aliens on earth and invasions and battles and things. And 
This one, it, it, it nailed it. And John Lithgow as uh, Dr. Emilio Lizardo, mm-hmm. such a strange character and a strange portrayal. And there were, there were people who did things in that didn't really make sense in that movie. And there were, there were things that were never really explained. Watching it again, I feel like there's a lot that I don't, I don't really like. But at the time, I felt like it was, I really connected with it for some reason. Well, what's weird about this list is like 16 Candles was absolutely a a big movie for me. Like, let's go, I mean, 1984, I'm in 10th grade. Right. 16 Candles, huge movie. Karate Kid felt, felt a little bit young. Like that felt like a kid movie to me. Yeah. Whereas 16 Candles felt like a movie. 16 Candles, Purple Rain, Ghostbusters. Yes. Yeah. Karate Kid, Footloose, and uh, <laughs> Gremlins uh, were for kids. Right. Sure. Uh, you, I, also, I will. you didn't mention that Spinal Tap came out in 84. No, I did mention that. Yeah. Oh, you did. You yeah. Said this Spinal is Spinal Tap. Tap. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, like Spinal Tap still very, very, I still quote Spinal Tap all the time. Yeah. But like Red Dawn, huge movie for me. Yes. Conan the Destroyer. Yes. For babies. Revenge of the Nerds. Yes. Huge movie for me. Splash was for kids and girls like you know this is this is right at the right at the cutoff tom hanks was that was one of his big breaks yeah but i wasn't into it romancing the stone huge movie for me you know what i watched that again recently and it was great it was still still great great. the alligators could have been better Mm -hmm. but it was a great movie body double do you remember that that pushed the limits of rated r I went to see Body Double in the theater with my friends. Yeah. Somehow we convinced our parents. Yeah, you must have snuck in or something. Well, it was a thing. We all went together and and one of the one of the gang, I think it might have oh, been Oh, they Tom- got their mom to or dad to let you in? No, it, I mean, you know, a lot of my friends were Catholic and Tony Hines' parents were very conservative, but somehow somebody made a case. We were 16 now and we were all ready to go see a rated R movie. And I don't know whose parent did it. Certainly what my mom didn't take us, but somebody didn't take us, but like took us there and said they can go to this movie. And it was a group of five or six of us. And we went to see body double, which is freaky. And we were scandalized. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, <laughs> we're just sitting in this movie with our eyes just boing yeah. as, uh, as this tale of obsession and murder Ugh. and porn. Yes. And, uh, it like, it really, it really scalded us. We came out of there and we just had so much to talk about. Yeah, you had we, aged like five years in, in the yeah. space of an hour and a half. We were very, it was, it was more information than we were really prepared to (laughs) process that's for sure (laughs) uh but like yeah going down the list right bachelor party huge movie yeah the last starfighter for kids yeah night of the comet was a terrible movie now if you had told me that the natural came out the same year as bachelor party i never would have believed no way it just doesn't feel they just don't feel like in the same league i've watched the natural 40 times yeah it's an amazing movie um, 
you know, against all odds. But then Repo Man feels so, <laughs> I know it's set in 1984, yeah. but it feels so, it feels so modern <laughs> relative to uh, some of the other stuff. Toxic Adventure and Johnny Dangerously. Really? Yeah. But great. Yeah. I still, I still remember Johnny Dangerously. My father hung me on a hook once. Once that line, you know, uh, it's just such a weird, it was such a weird time. Mary Lou Henner was maybe, I mean, she was an extremely um, powerful sex symbol to me. Mm. Mary Lou Henner, um, you know, because obviously she was on taxi, but there was, you know, and she was a redhead. Yeah, she was great. She was very, very appealing to me. Yeah. So appealing that in recent years, I went, you know, maybe five years ago, I was like, Mary Lou Henner. I'm going to research Mary Lou Henner because <laughs> I feel like, you know, she's out there still and she mattered. She mattered a lot to me. And I researched her and she, she got weird. Um, <laughs> She wrote a bunch of diet health books okay. and became like a health, health, um, like, uh, personality okay. for, for ladies, like a, like a, uh, maybe an infomercial level mm. health like a home shopping channel kind of thing. Something like that. Okay. And it was, it was, uh, it was a little shocking to see, mm this actress that I, that I connected with sort of on there selling pills yeah. selling, you know, like well, total do something. I mean, that taxi money probably ran out a long time ago. I guess. Although I wish I had a taste of that taxi money. Yeah, I know it. But yeah. These movies in there and all of these movies, I remember seeing all of these movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Starman still let that one left a huge, huge impact on me. Starman. Well, and you hit on the right thing, which is that every movie, I saw every one of those movies, like 50 movies mm -hmm. that I saw at least 50 movies that I saw in 1984 and, and fully 25 of them. I consider some of the greatest movies. Of, yeah, how is that? Now, is that one of those things that because we were of a certain age at that time that that they had a much bigger impact on us. And if we'd seen them five years later, they wouldn't have, you know, must be. I think it is because I haven't seen most of the movies that I see now. Yeah, it was good. It was a good movie. Nice way to spend, you know, 90 minutes of my life. But I don't, I, I am not like sitting there thinking about it weeks and weeks later, like, Oh my God, I just, I got to watch that again. But all of these movies were movies that I saw so many times, like red Dawn, Red Dawn was absolutely 100% going to happen any day. I'm still living in that world. No, I know. Wolverines! I mean, like... Let it turn into something else. Let it turn let it, it into turn something it into else. Something turn else. it into something else. I mean, like, that just, it stays with you. I cannot get that out. I, I swear to God, not a day goes by when I'm not, like, thinking we're about that. Are you not letting it turn into something else? No, nah, well, I got to turn it into something else. Yeah, turn it in to something else. 
Yeah, well, and if you think about it, <laughs> I obviously was going to the movies every week because <laughs> yeah, look, there's fifty, and, you know, and those are like those are really seminal films. Oh yeah, so many like movies, right? And the urban cowboy thing. A lot of people forget the, and I think Smokey and the Bandit. There was there was a in the seventies. <laughs> there was a huge. <laughs> subculture simultaneous culture that was based in outlaw country florida in her eyes i'm sorry i keep thinking about there's florida in her eyes there really is there's something to that you just dive into those giant eyes and then you're in a pool in orlando at a radisson (laughs) but but uh but there was this there was this trucker culture southern culture and if you think about all the stuff in the 70s that 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 repped that culture you got your leonard skinnerd you got your convoy you've got uh dolly pardon and and willie nelson and and then Smokey and the bandit which was a real southern pride film right like like yes that famous scene where where the bandit and sally field are, are you know they kind of pull off to the side of the road and they have a little moment in a in a oasis there's a little you know they're <laughs> they're 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 taking a break from this yeah. crazy trip and for some reason all of a sudden they're like they 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 pull the they pull the trans am over and that car that car oh my god but they're like in a glade and it's real it's really this sort of beautiful southern little vista and they have this they like each other they're 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 kind of starting to fall for each other and she's like have you ever you know have you ever seen a broadway show and he's like no have you ever heard of mickey gilly and she's like no have you ever you know have you ever seen rogers and hammerstein or something and he's like no have you ever been to a nascar race (laughs) and it's a real back and forth where where the bandit is kind of getting the better of her because he's got that he's got that smirk right he's got that smirk where he's like all of your big highfalutin new york city stuff might be might be well and good but down here in the south we have our own culture and it's real good it's real nice and you know that was a mainstream film that was really putting the sort of Confederate flag right. Oh at the, yeah, it was right at the front. Yep, and saying, but Confederate flag, you know, in what it represented at the time, which was like yeehaw. Yes, and then you got your then you got your Duke boys. Your, uh, you know, this this was all like fetishizing the South to the South. You know, it was it was a it was the South will rise again kind of thing, where it was it was being packaged for a mainstream American consumption as a kind of down home, like the America that was kind of being lost elsewhere, small town values, good old times. And so all through the seventies, that was, and that was really in everything, denim and cowboy boots and, and so forth. And then when the, when the eighties flipped over, 
it turned into that urban cowboy weirdness. Yeah, that was weird. Which was like city, what was it? City folks trying to be country folks? Like putting on putting on cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and, and like working it like a look. Yeah, going dancing. Yeah. Go, going Line two dancing, stepping. Two stepping. Right. Right. And it and it it morphed. And I think that was when the TV show Dallas was sure. big. Yeah. And so there was this crazy that was when the oil money was happening. It was this it was this simultaneous like adjunct culture. If you wanted to just be living in southern culture, all through the 70s and 80s, you could. There was always going to be something over there for you. But it was also meant to be watched by everybody in America. And it wasn't It wasn't like, Southern people, aren't they cute? It was real Southern pride. It was coming from a, coming from a prideful place. And, uh, and it used to kind of itch. Like, I used to itch a little bit at it. I loved Smokey and the Bandit and I loved Convoy and I loved Leonard Skinnerd. But when it when it switched over in the eighties into this other kind of thing, I didn't like it anymore. And I felt and it and it made me feel a little bit hostile to mm. that version of the South. And that's a thing that I can't exactly tell you why why the Dukes of Hazard felt like a Felt like something gross, whereas Smokey and the Bandit felt like something grand. Mm. I see what you mean there. Yeah. It's like, it, a door, like you're talking about opening doors again. It was like the door kind of was opened. Yeah, it was like a different kind. Like I saw that. I saw that movie. And I, I just, I mean, I was... Like, whoa, there, there's like a whole, it, which was the James Bond movie where he goes down and he's in the South and he's like running across the, the alligators. Oh, you know how that's a Roger Moore, Roger era. Moore. Yeah. And you, and, and, and you feel like, well, what's he doing down there? And yet he's sort of like, the, it like opened up a whole different world that like that movie kind of did that. But as yeah, I, it was, it was exotic. Territory. Yeah. Right. Right. But it was right here in America. Yeah. Sort of. And that's all the deliverance. The idea that the South is a kind of scary, spooky, yeah, swamp full of weirdos and characters <laughs> is, is a deliverance, yeah, uh, product. But in Smokey and the Bandit, if you remember that scene where the Bandit calls on the CB radio to the to the gal that's running the drive-in restaurant, and he's like, "Hey, sugar, got your ears on." And she's like, is that you, Bandit? And he's like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm coming through, and I could use all the help I can get. Right. And the, you know, the camera kind of zooms out, and it's this, <clears throat> it's a drive-in restaurant, and it feels a little bit like the California drive-ins of the 60s, mm. where you've got Big Daddy Roth <laughs> with all his hot rod uh you know, his Von Dutch style hot rod cars right. and everybody's sitting there in their hopped up 57 Chevys, except this is late seventies. And so there's a drive in and all the good old Southern boys and good old Southern girls in their cutoff jeans and, 
and with their uh, with their you know their Ford Broncos, they're all like, "We're gonna help the bandit," <laughs> and <laughs> you know, and and one of them was like, "Saddle up and ride," and all of a sudden, this parade of super cool, like really cool, hopped up cars, custom hot rods, yeah. Get get in a parade, ready to go. The bandit comes through the crossroads, yeah! And then these guys all get on the road in a big convoy, going real slow, and like rum 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 rum. And they drive on the they they fill up the road, and then the all the cops chasing the bandit can't get through. They're all blocked, yeah, because they're blocked by all the cool cars. Well, so that obviously is like a way of saying that that good old sock hop American car culture of the fifties and sixties might, you know, the American graffiti version of the world, which is gone now from California. It's gone from the rust belt because we're it's 1979 and Cleveland is burning and LA has turned into some other kind of awful place. But somewhere down in the South, it still persists and it feels still feels virtuous. It still feels innocent. We're just down here drinking milkshakes, Mm -hmm. talking on our CB radios, souping up cars and like we're young and beautiful and it's still it's still here. Right. And we're also it's the South. So we're a little bit anti-authoritarian and we tease the cops and we. We, uh, we screw with them. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing more American than that kind of screwing with the cops. Cause the cops are dumb, right? That had a real effect on me. You know, that felt like I wasn't exactly sure that I wanted to live in the South, but, but it felt, it felt like a contemporary version of this thing that I was already sort of feeling like was lost. The beach boys, version of it was gone but the bandit version of it still survived yeah and you know the anchorage version of that survived into the into the mid to late 80s like we had a big strip that all the cars cruised and big custom car scene up there people on friday and saturday night cruising at one mile an hour around the Northern Lights and Benson Loop. And you'd park on the side of the road and watch the cars go by and the and uh people hanging out of the T top and you'd get your dad's Corvette and get out there and make the make the run. It was a big part of what we did on weekends. Yeah. Cruise that strip. <laughs> 